Are people really self-made? What about rags to riches stories? Do people really pick themselves up from the dust and create an environment that makes them successful all by themselves? Are there antecedents to success? Let's dig in. The book, Outliers. The author, Malcolm Gladwell. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's Let's get get lit. lit! And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. So Kari, how was your week? You know, it's been really busy. I'm exhausted. What about you? Uh, Wow. Last week, I developed hives um, from an unknown source. It's essentially my allergies getting worse. Do you think it was my cat? Uh, No. (laughs) Um, Wednesday night, I couldn't sleep. I was waking up every hour and a half because of oh, the itching. No. Mm-hmm. Thursday morning, my face was swole. And then Thursday evening, I couldn't sleep. I finally went into the emergent, urgent care. <gasps> what? Um, You'll be out here living a whole life and not telling <laughs> nobody. What happened? And uh, I got two butt injections to get the swelling That's to go unrelated. down. In Miami. Now, I remember when you got them. <laughs> is this about hives? <laughs> this is about hives. And I'm just starting to really feel better today. I went back wow. for a follow-up appointment on um, this morning. And um, I had a little rash, um, kind of, um, but it wasn't itchy on my breast and kind of like, I must have been scratching in my sleep, but it is. I'm I'm heavily medicated with allergy medicine and prednisone. So um, it's only supposed to get better from here, but we shall see. So I've Girl, been sleeping this... a lot and not working because um, oh. I've been so miserable. And medicated. And Everybody medicated. know allergy medicine just puts you to sleep. That's all it is, is sleeping pills. Yeah, oh so goodness. I've just been um, very just, ugh. Miserable. I'm better now. Yep, I'm better now. Well, I'm glad you're on the other side of that and you have no idea what led to it. No, I don't. I really, it really just could be that my allergies are getting worse. You don't Um, think it's anxiety going back mm -hmm. to the office? No. Okay. Just throwing Mm -hmm. that out there with my limited medical knowledge. (laughs) Mm -mm. Well, you know, stress is one of the things that can cause highs, but no, that's not it. Okay. I'm not stressed out about anything. I'm back at work. I've been there for a few weeks now. And as you can see, I work by myself in a little bit. Yeah, corner. you have no reason to complain. <laughs> it ain't a little corner, but we're going to play your game. <laughs> yes, you have a beautiful office basically to yourself, a whole floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well. that's cool. So, yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm better today. Anyway, let's move along with our Dang. good fun times. Okay. Um, <laughs> each week we select a theme to discuss. Folks will inspired. really be in the emergency room and I tell you. Okay, yes. Theme of the week, <laughs> the podcast. I wasn't in emergency. I went to urgent care. That's different. I don't know the difference. It's very different. It's like going into a doctor's office. Mm. Why would you do that unless it was an emergency? <laughs> Because I, my doctor said I needed to be treated. <laughs> okay, right girl, we'll talk so. about it offline. Go ahead. 
Each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we are reading. This week's theme is, is the 10,000 hour rule a misinterpretation of research? Mm. You know, uh, Kari, in the first few chapters of Outliers and a little bit throughout, Gladwell speaks of the 10,000 hour rule. He didn't originate the rule, but he definitely popularized it with the release of his book in 2008. Without a doubt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The 10,000 hour rule originated with a study done in the early 1990s by psychologist Kay Anders Erickson and two colleagues at Berlin's Elite Academy of Music. The idea is that 10,000 hours of practice is required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world class expert in anything. Ha. It doesn't matter the field or area of expertise. You could be a composer, a basketball player, a fiction writer, an ice skater, even a master criminal. This is even true of people considered protégés. Prodigies? Prodigies. Mm-hmm. Prodigy. However, protégé. <laughs> I do not know. If you're a protege, that means you come up behind somebody, right? But a prodigy. A protege is just a young genius in some type of category. But then what is a prodigy? Is it the same thing? Prodigy is a rapper. Hold <laughs> <That's> on. <laughs> That's a stage name. Oh, it's only prodigy I know. Hold on. Okay. How, how to pronounce prodigy. But what's protege? Oh, girl, they spell differently. Ooh. Wait, what is <laughs> Am I dumb? Protege. <laughs> oh, protege versus prodigy. Here we go. We ain't the only ones. <laughs> I love when they have it right there for you. Me too. Okay, the so answer? the noun prodigy refers to a highly talented young person or a wondrous event. The noun protege refers to someone whose training or career is advanced by an influential pro- person. So, yes. However, Erickson believes that Gladwell oversimplified and incorrectly interpreted his research. Erickson says that 10,000 is an arbitrary number and it's not based on anything substantial. Erickson says Gladwell misunderstood that the 10,000 hours was an average. The 10,000 hour rule also doesn't take into consideration the type of practice. Instead, it seems to focus on the quantity and not the quality of practice. Not all practice is equally helpful. Erickson says the best way to get better at something is through deliberate practice, meaning practicing in order to get better, doing activities recommended by experts to develop specific abilities, identifying weaknesses, and working to correct them and intentionally pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Erickson says you don't get better from mechanical repetition, but by adjusting your execution over and over to get closer to your goal. But even that's not enough. The factors of greatness not only include deliberate practice, but also your genetic makeup, when you start, how you learn, all that combined determines how long it will take you to reach mastery. So, How can we use this 10,000 hour rule for our everyday lives? Well, I found an article that said it's called Develop Good Habits, 11 Ways to Master Any Skill. And we'll just go into them. This is interesting. How about that? Yeah, I love it. 
So the first one, and Carl, you're really good at giving examples when I um, speak to things. So I am going to look for you to provide examples, okay? Oh, the pressure. As I I talk about some of these um, skills, these 11 ways. Okay. The first one is identify what you want to be able to accomplish. Be selective in what the skill is going to be. The perfect skill for you to master either solves a problem that you have or is directly related to something that you're interested in. Otherwise, you lose motivation and the perseverance that you need to be successful. You want to be excited about reaching your end goal. Okay. Mm. So first, identify what's something that you want to accomplish. So when you identify something that you want to accomplish, you want to set very specific goals that require you to have a clear path. Vague goals are not very motivating because they lack inspiring details. So an example in that case might be what, Kari? So let's say, for example, you are trying to learn a new language. You are not going to be able to, after studying that language for two months, watch an entire movie and understand what they're saying. However, you can try to hold a a rudimentary, like a real basic conversation with a child. (laughs) And I think speaking to children is great practice because their grammar is terrible. They, They usually only know how to convey thoughts in the way that people speak to them. And that is usually kind of sloppy grammatically. So that's great. Um, Practice conversation, perhaps with a child or try to learn a certain uh, number of words within a time frame that you can use in everyday life. So instead of saying something like, I want to learn French in two months, be very specific about your goal. I want to know, maybe I want to be able to have a conversation with a child in two months. That's very specific and goal directed. And well, that'll I help wanna, you. I want to know this song, uh, this French song. I want to be able to sing it. And I'm exactly. Yeah, exactly. So pick something that will um, help solve a problem for you or something that you have a deep interest in. The second thing is to accept your current experience level, admitting that you are a complete beginner at a skill you wish to master is important. Everyone interprets mastering something differently. You're saying set the end goal. What is the end goal after all these milestones are accomplished? Yeah, make it clear um, and make it realistic. Make it realistic. If you set a reasonable goal with your experience level in mind and you're able to stick with it, it'll be more reasonable to hit your milestone and achieve your goal. Three, determine how you learn best. Some people learn hands on. Some people prefer to watch others and demonstrate, um, watch others demonstrate it to them and then you follow. Other people like to learn by just reading. Well, you need to determine what your best learning style is so you could be most effective at achieving your goal. Knowing your learning style and using methods suitable to your style can help you um, absorb the information and execute the skill faster. Number four, see if you can break down a skill into subskills. I've heard this called chunking the elephant. Um, It's got other names as well. It's when you have a big goal and you break it down into manageable parts. It helps you feel at ease with learning this new skill. So you identify the most basic building blocks of the skill that you start with. We go back to learning a language instead of saying learn learn French, which is very vague and encompasses so much. You want to be able to master the first level of French um, uh, program within 
three weeks, maybe learning um, the basic, just common used words. <laughs> Five, focus on learning the most important sub-skills. Again, back to chump chunking that elephant. You want to identify the goal segments and establish which ones are truly necessary for success and pay attention to those first and then use that deliberate practice. Um, that's one of the things that Erickson said that um, Gladwell was leaving out. He said, you have to be able to have a deliberate practice, practice that enhances you, um, that identifies your weaknesses so you can work on those. And then when you have success, celebrate your success. Take pride in your progress and then recognize that achievement um, of mastering each sub skill so that you can maintain that long-term motivation. Number six, while practicing, focus on the quality of your work rather than the quantity or duration of your practice. So this is all based off of that 10,000 hours. Well, instead of focusing on that number, Think about that 80-20 rule. Kari, are you familiar with the 80-20 oh, rule? Um, please remind me. We know that 80% of what we're learning will come from 20% of the work that we do. Mm. So identify the 20% of work that will give you the most results when you are learning something new. Yes, Again. I've heard this uh, regarding vacuuming. Oh, okay. That's a How common does that work? analogy. Uh, yeah, what is it? Okay, so let's say you're at home and your kids have thrown all the toys all over the floor. With this 80-20 rule, what you do first is not vacuum every crevice of the floor. You pick up the large things that are um, laying around. So like the toys and stuff. That won't take you as long and that will make the room look relatively clean already. Straighten up, um, but don't straighten. Okay, if you need to straighten up, but don't have the time to put things away and get things really clean. Um, get everything that doesn't belong on the floor, off the floor. And then number two, clean surfaces. Number three, make the bed. And four, straighten items. Fifth, vacuum. That takes the most effort because you're getting every corner, but already the room looks clean. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's where I've heard the rule from. It does, and it, um, I, I don't know what it makes me think of, but I, I've kind of heard that before. But it, it, just in the idea of the way you clean is just picking up the big pieces and putting them away first. That's like, that can have a huge impact on, especially how you feel about your results early yeah, on. Yeah, because your feelings fire. affect your motivation. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So good. That was number six. While practicing, focus on the quality of your work rather than the quantity or the duration of your practice. Seven, find a mentor, coach, or teacher who can give you feedback about how you are doing. Having a mentor can give you some leadership or high and high quality advice from someone who already has been in your shoes. For instance, you could get a, um, a trainer if you're trying to lose weight, or you can get a buddy who's further along um, than you are. And you can ask them about the roadblocks they face when learning the skill. And you can have a tutor when you're doing, um, when you're learning a new language. Eight, share what you know with others. This is like so wonderful because it's so true. When you teach others, it's one of the best ways for you to learn. So if you're able to 
understand a concept or idea well enough to relay it to others, it will help you internalize that information. And this teaching doesn't have to be like a formal setting. It could be informal. A friend who's also interested in gaining a skill or um, start working with them just to get them started. And doing this will help you strengthen your own ability to learn and improve your uh, skills with different people in different areas. Number nine, practice during the time of day when you feel most productive. It helps you focus more. So low points of productivity, um, productivity during the day and trying to power through these things, these times can lead to substandard results, but we want great results. So we have to find the best time that we are most productive and that will allow us to produce um, Mm. the level of focus and energy that we need to be most productive while we're learning this new skill. I tried to touch on that in our Anna Karenina, I think part two with the power of the middle. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember that. So check Uh, out that episode if you forgot. And um, (laughs) another point, you may be tempted to dedicate. I mean, when you get excited about something that you're learning, you may be tempted to dedicate every waking hour to your newfound passion. This can lead to burnout. So try mm-hmm. to avoid that or um, spending all your energy to this one activity. Or reading a book every week for a podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> intense. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Number 10, be patient with yourself. Uh, take baby steps when learning a new skill. Learn to pick yourself up every time you fall until you eventually get the hang of it. Be patient. And don't have unrealistic expectations. Check in with someone who's already mastered the skill. See how long it's taking them and what Mm. kind of frustrations they've run into and how they um, encounter tests of patience. And then finally, um, set manageable, manageable goals for every day. It's a good idea to take small steps first, uh, take incremental steps to make gradual progress toward your goal of learning a new skill, Uh, little consistent steps uh, that will create a greater change in the long run. Setting manageable goals will help you persist through the days when you really feel like quitting. So that's it. Although the um, 10,000 hour rule is not perfect, it does apply in a lot of ways. Um, as we read, as we um, hear it in the story, it's the work. It to me, it amounts to the amount of work that people are putting in. Yeah, to I feel like naysayers goals. are taking mm-hmm. it a little too literal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the principle that he's presenting and expounding on that is really worth its um, weight. I I hundred percent agree. I, I think people are like, "Nah, you're doing too much." He really. I was an expert in nine hundred. <laughs> Hours. Exactly. You know, like, okay. And the, the principle there that he's speaking to is reasonable. And this is this man's original research. So, okay, somebody else is using it and making it popular. Don't be mad. <laughs> Don't be mad. <laughs> That's right. Gladwell didn't think of this. No. And he says it once and or twice, but he don't really repeat that he didn't create it. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all very clear. You can find it in appendix. Um, the author's sure. name is in the book. So it's, it's um, he's not making it his own. He really is just applying the, um, the principle. Idea to real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just it, um, I think it essentially equates to like 10 years of work. 
practice apprentice work for at least 10 years. So, yeah, that's it. And you got me remembering uh, ways I thought I would apply the 80-20 rule in life. When I first discovered this rule, I was like, oh, my goodness, this has changed me. I have so much more time. 80-20. Instead of doing your whole face in the morning, do the mascara with the bright lip. That's 20% of the work for 80% of the output. If you got a business like we do, focus on the 20% that produces the most, um, what, profit. Our business isn't profitable, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that. Um, I liked all those ideas. And having a mentor who's been there before will help you feel like these um, walls that you're hitting, other people have hit them also. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. Great. So let's take a quick break before we jump into the author and context. Okay, sounds good. And we're back. Ari, can you give us some context and background about our author, Malcolm Gladwell? Of course I can, Alexis. And before we start, I just want to say that Outliers was my introduction to Malcolm Gladwell, and I was all in. I carried that book everywhere with me until it was stolen by a dear friend named Alexis Anaria. (laughs) Till this day, she has decided she did not steal it. And so it was a hardcover. I like hardcovers for some reason. I think she stole it. Um, do you have a hardcover of Outliers? From the library, man. They don't even, you can't even find the hardcover no more at the library, which is how I know she stole it from me. But that's okay. <laughs> we gonna let the bygones be bygones. This is my library book. And that's fine. So uh, what, what was your question, Thief? <laughs> um, yeah, so who is Author Malcolm Gladwell? Context, please. No problem. Malcolm Timothy Gladwell is a social anthropologist Journalist, author, instructor, podcaster, and public speaker. He do it all. Uh, he oh. was born in Hampshire, Hampshire, England, uh, September 3rd, 1963. And when he was six, his family moved to a Mennonite community in Ontario, Canada. His mother's Jamaican um, psychotherapist and his father was a mathematician, an English mathematician. He earned a bachelor's in history. And I love this. Um, he first of all, anybody with a bachelor's in history, at least 10 people have told you to stop earning your bachelor's in history. (laughs) (laughs) Stop doing it. Why are you doing it? What is going on? What's the point? Pick a real major. Are you going to be a teacher? How are you going to pay back your loans? No, 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 no. History is awesome if you can just study it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And not have to worry about occupation from a degree but anyway he earned a bachelor's in history and I have a feeling that he chose history just because he enjoyed it he wasn't that great at school not good enough anyway to go to grad school and he was like great because I don't even like it here Mm -hmm. and so he started working as a journalist for like a conservative publication before joining the team at the Washington Post guess how long Alexis he was with the Washington Post two years ten years 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. That makes sense. And he says he started as a basket case and ended as an expert after those 10,000 <laughs> hours with the Washington Post. After the Post, he started at The New Yorker, where the last Yorker. week's um, subject, or in our episode from last week, Joseph Mitchell also, of course, worked and made famous. Um, Gladwell's first assignment was to write about fashion. <laughs> 
They looked at him and was like, uh, right about fashion. He was like, okay. Um, <laughs> Please Google Malcolm Gladwell. This is funny. He says, it was much more interesting to write a piece about someone who made t-shirts for $8 than it was to write about a dress that cost $100,000. I mean, you or I could make a dress for $100,000, but to make a t-shirt for $8, that's much tougher. (laughs) So he has this way of looking at things and approaching assignments and tasks and life ultimately um, that led to his success, um, coupled, of course, with... um, timing culture and uh event opportunities in 10,000 hours anyway <laughs> uh two 1996 new yorker articles gained him notoriety and these were titled the tipping point and the cool hunt both mm. would be the basis for his book the tipping point which you and i have read yeah um outliers published in 2008 is glywell's third book it examines how a person's environment in conjunction with their drive and motivation affects their possibility and opportunity for success. This is the book we're discussing today. Gladwell's critics have described him as prone to oversimplification. And that's because he takes these anecdotes, these real life examples, and he applies major um, like definite principles to them. And that's always tricky. Um, Gladwell's writings often deal with the unexpected implications of research in the social sciences Um, like sociology and um, psychology and make frequent and extended use of academic work. So the work that you noted in our theme of the week discussion, he's making real life use of that. And that's his thing. Um, Like you said, he always credits his sources, um, but he's doing research on his own. That's how research works. You take something that someone's already done and you expound upon it, you add to it um, and you talk to people. So um, that's his thing. Anything else you'd like to bring up? out about Malcolm? No, no, nothing. That's all very interesting. Thanks. This is stopping on the end of our show. However, I want to ask you between The Tipping Point and Outliers, which book spoke to you more? Oh, that's interesting. Can we? I mean, each is their own animal, but which animal did you prefer? Oh, that is. Can we ask that at the end? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, you're right. that. I love that. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing the um, information about Malcolm. Why don't um, we hear your brief synopsis without spoilers before our deep dive? Brief synopsis. Here we go. The power of genius is considered the key to success in life and business. That genius, it is thought, cannot be earned. It is divinely gifted, inexplicable. However, one writer follows the stories of the exception and arrives at one conclusion. The power of genius is nothing compared to the power of community. The latter made the Beatles the Beatles. It makes hockey players superstars and even makes Asian people great at math. Grown, but we'll explain. When you have the ability, our author concludes, what gets you to the top is not genius, it's work. What's more, the exact amount of work necessary to reach outlier status can be quantified. It's 10,000 hours or three hours per day, 20 hours per week for 10 years. So, Alexis, what were your first thoughts of Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Well, I enjoyed the first book that we read by Malcolm, so I was excited to jump into this book. Um, Kyrie, what do you who do you think would enjoy reading this book? I think if you enjoy critically thinking about societal norms, then you'll enjoy this. It's not um, trying to change your, you know 
your life principles. It's just making you rethink the 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 people who are put on pedestals. And if mm-hmm. that's you, then it's making you rethink because we're all put on pedestals in some yeah. um, area of our life. So it's making us uh, think about, well, how do we get there? And are we really as great as we think? Mm. Spoiler alert, we ain't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kari, are we ready to take this deep dive into outliers filled with spoilers? Sure. Sounds good. I am going to spoil this book if you haven't read it already. However, um, this is going to be a discussion between Alexis and myself, and I'm only touching on a few of the anecdotes. So my Mm. point is, if you go back and read the book, uh, you'll find a lot more there than what I'm giving you now. And let's begin. The theory. Timing, culture, Accumulative advantage and practice. Timing, culture, accumulative advantage, and practice. Four things we're going to focus on. No expert rose to the top without practice, and no amateur failed in spite of many hours of practice. The more capable individuals were always the individuals who practiced the most. Gladwell says that research has even settled on like the quote unquote perfect number of hours it takes to achieve expertise. And it's 10,000. This holds true even for those select few we consider prodigies as Electus brought out earlier. Um, For example, by the time Mozart composed his first masterwork, he was 21 and he'd been composing concertos for 10 years by this time. Some good, some not. And that's Mozart. To become an expert, you likely need parents who support you and encourage you. And it helps to have enough money so that you don't have to work for a living in your spare time. Mm. Only extraordinary opportunity gives a person the ability to become an expert. Uh, So that's the theory. That's what we're working with. And now we're going to apply it to real life examples to see if it holds up. Part one, the town of (laughs) Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So here's the anecdote. There was this town in Pennsylvania, right? And nobody was dying and people were confused, (laughs) flabbergasted. The name of the town was Rosetto and it was named after where most of the residents had originally come from in Italy. Virtually no one under 55 had died of a heart attack in this town or showed any signs of heart disease. And that was exceptional because for men over 65, the death rate from heart disease in Rosetto was roughly half of that of the U.S. as a whole. Um, So they were doing really good in the heart department. Heart disease, guys, it's still a problem. Uh, Watch your numbers. The death rate from all causes in Rosetto, in fact, was um, 30 to 35% lower than expected for compared to other regions of the U.S. So um, Gladwell takes the words of one sociologist named John Brunn. And that guy, Brunn, says there was no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction and very little crime. They didn't have anyone on welfare. Um, They didn't have, you know, any um, like uh, the the plagues of a society that we are commonly faced with in the U.S. They didn't have it there. What they were dying from was old age. That's it. Uh, Bron also says, I remember going to Rosetto for the first time and you'd see three generational family meals, all the bakeries, the people walking up and down the street, sitting on their porches, talking to each other. Um, The mills where the women worked during the day while the men worked in the slate quarries. It was all magical, he says. End quote. Living a long life, the conventional wisdom at the time said, depended on who we were. That's our genes. 
So you live long because your grandparents live long and their grandparents live long. It depended also on the decisions we make. Are you a smoker? What do you choose to eat? How much exercise do you get? But these people in Rosetta weren't like the best, uh, the healthiest people. Right. They was like <laughs> eating bread with their family, drinking good wine and living a good life for a long time. And that's because no one was used to thinking about um, our life expectancy in the context of community. So the conclusion, Gladwell says they had to look beyond the individual. You couldn't just take someone from Rosetto and say, oh, you're living to um, 95 because of this, this and that. Because then they would say, because you eat bread every day, you drink wine, uh, you consume a lot of cheese. What people had to understand or what the researchers had to understand was the culture of the town. Mm -hmm. That is what was leading to the longevity of the people. They had to appreciate the idea that the values of the world we inhabit inhabit and the people we surround ourselves with have a profound effect on who we are and how long we live. This is uh, really striking because in our society, we like to say that the individual holds the key to, you know, anything they want in life. If you are doing well, it's because of you and no one else. If you're living long, you likely made great choices. In this case, though, specifically when it comes to life expectancy, it wasn't because of the individual's choices. It was because of the community. And it reminded me of an article that um, we're going to talk about in a future show um, that was, I'll say, attacking, but it was uh, challenging the American idea of a nuclear family. Have you Mm. read that article? Mm -mm. We've talked about it, right? Yeah, we have a little bit. Yeah. And nuclear family, of course, is dad, mom and the children. They live in a house and, you know, the children grow up, get jobs, move away. Mom and dad become empty nesters and one by one they die. (laughs) That's the nuclear family. But that is a newish idea that helps the economy. Um, Typically, or I should say historically. Cultures. Yeah. Well, historically in. um. Yeah, historically, and then also in um, cultures throughout the world, it's more common to have generations within one household. And this leads to less loneliness. It leads to healthier living. People live with purpose. Children know how to treat older people. Older people feel important because um, all the people in the house look to them usually for guidance or at least speak to them, acknowledging them on a daily basis they are cared for. Um, So I think this goes into the um, idea Gladwell is presenting for why the people of Rosetto were living so long. Anything you wanted to add about the town of Rosetto, Pennsylvania? No, I, no. Okay. All right. Well, this is number one on our list of four. I'm going to go through like four or five. We'll see, maybe six. So number two, hockey players in Canada. Mm -hmm. The anecdote, Canadian hockey is a meritocracy. And that means you can't buy your way to the top. Your class or breeding is irrelevant. It's all based on your merit. Your merit gets you the success. The only thing that matters is individual talent. This is the thinking that Gladwell challenges. The conclusion. Because junior leagues, Gladwell concludes, are divided by ages, those born at the beginning of the year get more practice and coaching time. Remember, ours are the game. And their advantage, according to Gladwell, is their birth month. They get more time with the coach. They become better players. His conclusion then is that the best hockey players in Canada were born at the top of the year. They're born in January. And this gave them an advantage that coupled with hard work, yes, 
made them the coach's favorite, which made them the best players, which encouraged them to practice, which got them on the best teams, which earned them victories in the sport. Naysayers. Folks are not happy with this idea. (laughs) Some have taken this theory, particularly in the professional hockey world, and attacked it like a personal offense. Uh, They've named pro players, provided lists, in fact, um, showing many to be born later in the year. Okay, one researcher found that only 20 percent of the top players he studied were born early in the year. So they're like, aha, gotcha. Well, you don't know what you're talking about, about our sacred sport. And I get it. But I think uh, they're all like missing the point. This isn't about hockey. It's about the power of community and influence in the success of the successful. Maybe someone plays well that was born um, in September. But they lived near an ice rink that afforded them more time to practice. Or maybe their parents could afford a private coach before they joined a team. The point is that true outlier status is rarely the result of an individual's natural gifts. That's it. That's (laughs) That's it. it. That's That's the point. There's success. Opportunities contribute to an individual's success. And this isn't like, oh, if you're a minority and you don't get to. That's not at all what this book is talking about. Um, it's just the idea that there's a cumulative advantage. So you start with one advantage in this case, perhaps being born in January, you get that extra time with the coach, you get the extra practice, and then you just accumulate more advantages. Mm -hmm. Then you're better than everyone else on your team. Then that makes you want to practice more. And you know what I mean? So it's like a rolling, um, yeah, whatever weed that picks up all the weed. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Also, I did my own research with the only hockey hockey players I know or have heard of. And I want to share that with you. Oh, I love it. Okay. Wayne Gretzky. You Mm -hmm. heard of him? Absolutely. He was born in Canada, January of 1961. I rest my case. Oh, can we? Part three. Can we? (laughs) I mean, my goodness. I want to say he might be the only hockey player I know. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I was was proud of myself. I said, I'm no hockey. Wayne Gretzky. Mm -hmm. He played for the teams. And and ultimately, it's the timing. This cutoff date makes it possible for them to get in this early practice where there's people that's later on, they got to wait a whole nother year. I wonder if you can apply this to schools because what's the cutoff for um, American school system like September? He did apply this to school. He talked about um, how it it doesn't make sense to set up the school in that way. And then what you could do instead is group people so that you're with people in your common and then you can excel through that format. So yeah, Mm. there's a September 1st cutoff. You have to be maybe five by September 1st or something. Yeah. So if you're born on September 3rd, you end up being the oldest one in your class, right? Mm -hmm. Or no, no, no. August, August 30th. Right. If, if you're born, born August 30th, 30th, you end up being like the um, oldest one in your class. And maybe that produces a stigma in you that continues through your. I don't know. That's confusing. Um, but yeah, he did I'm talk confused. about that. So I don't know ages. Okay. Part three. Part three. Bites over bros. The anecdote. So there's this guy named Bill Joy and he's like and he's a real life person, by the way. He's a tech luminary and computer science legend. The University of Michigan opened one of the world's most advanced computer centers in 1971 when Joy was a student and he stumbled across the computing center in his freshman year and was hooked. He had no um, 
desire to go to college for anything related to computers. I think he wanted to go for math or something else lame. So he was already like lame. <laughs> but um, <laughs> once they got the uh, university, got this computer center, he started uh, spending more time there. He eventually enrolled in the graduate school at UC Berkeley where he dazzled examiners with his brilliance. He went on to rewrite Unix, a popular operating system. Um, and this led to edit, th th his edits remain in effect today. So this led to um, coding that we still use in computer systems now. He also rewrote Java and his legendary status grew even more. It's often said that about Joy that he succeeded in a brave new world where heritage, connections, and status didn't matter. It was all what you knew about computer programming, and that's it. Because it, it was such yeah, a new era. It was such a new era. Brand new technology. How could your breeding have anything to do with your success? Exactly. And, and that people feel like he was judged solely on his talent, and he won because he was one of the best. Full stop, period. But Gladwell's like, ah, ah, is that true? The conclusion. Gladwell concedes that, yes, innate talent exists and it's important. You have to have some talent, right? And Joy probably had a whole, whole, whole lot of talent. But, Gladwell argues, innate talent will never become expertise without practice. Lots of practice. And in the case of Bill Joy, he enrolled at Michigan. Um, and just before he enrolled, programming was done in this tedious way with punch cards. And it wasn't so much about programming as waiting, because you would turn in these punch cards and they had to be fed um, by an operator into the computer and everyone had to go one at a time. It was stupid slow and it was nearly impossible to become an expert at that speed. But when Bill Joy entered school, the computing revolution, uh, revolution of time sharing had been invented. Multiple people could now connect at once to one computer and give commands in a program and receive feedback. And they could do this for as long as they wanted. By happy accident, Joy found himself at one of the only places in the world where a 17-year-old could program all he wanted. Joy says that the difference between computing cars and time sharing was like the difference between playing chess by mail and speed chess. <laughs> so it had finally become accessible and fun. And Joy was figuring out like anything he wanted to do. He had the time to practice it. Um, he neglected his coursework and spent most of every night in the lab and by his second year at Berkeley in Joy's own calculation he had programmed for 10,000 hours mm. this um, theory or anecdote can also explain how the Beatles became the Beatles according to Gladwell who assumes that we like the Beatles but that's fine <laughs> Alexis can he you please explain <laughs> <laughs> yeah can you explain how um, his theory translates into the success of the band? So the Beatles were playing locally, but then they had an opportunity to play somewhere else. I can't remember. Where Germany. Oh, in yeah. Germany. So they go over to Germany and they had to, I don't know where it was, but they had to play eight hours a day. Like, yeah, I was at a gentleman's club oh, that's that wasn't right. very gentlemanly. <laughs> and so usually they were only used to playing for an hour, but now they're playing eight hours a day. Every day of the week, was it? Seven days a week. Yeah. So it's like this 24-hour like Las Vegas type setting. And in order to get people in the club, you had to really draw them in with your talent so that the exactly. owners could make money in their business. Um, and so they, it was more about time. Mm -hmm. They could practice new uh, techniques, 
try new songs. It wasn't necessarily about being the best. It was right. about playing the longest. So you could you could play it and back home, they could just play an hour and just play their greatest stuff, you know, the best. And maybe like um uh what do you open for another band that was gonna play maybe similar music if they had stayed. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like it wasn't a yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this new area, they they're trying out new stuff. They're um, you know, and they're playing longer. They have an opportunity to check their their weaknesses, if you will, and right. improve them. You're playing eight hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. Insane. No, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but they enjoyed it, too. So that helps motivate them. Yeah. And all of that equaled success. And they became like one of the biggest bands in the world next to, um, I guess, TLC. <laughs> so anyway, uh, part four, <laughs> entitled children and summer vacation. Oh, I love this one. Me too. I should have spent more time here. I'm actually winding down. So um, the anecdote, some children do well in school because they're smart and focused and others don't because they're lazy and less intelligent than the smart children. However, what about culture, accumulative advantage and practice? This is what Gladwell's asking. The way you were raised, namely with wealthy and um, or less fortunate parents also plays a a role in um, your success. Right. Gladwell explains that when wealthy parents drive their children to the doctor, (laughs) I loved this example because he tells you that this mom is driving her son to the doctor and she's telling him things like, Johnny, now if you have any questions, think about them ahead of time so you can ask them of the doctor. And then when they get into the um, doctor's office, um, the doctor is telling Johnny what he's going to do. And Johnny's like, hold on a second. I also have bumps on my armpits. And the doctor's like, oh, you do? Yes, yes, I do. Okay, do these bumps hurt? Are they itchy? No, they're just there. Okay, I'll include them in my check. And that type of back and forth with an authority gives Johnny a sense of entitlement. This is a word that has a really bad rep these mm-hmm. days. But this is good entitlement because I know adults who don't question the doctor mm-hmm. about things. <laughs> the idea is Johnny feels entitled to speak to the doctor on a level that is closer to a peer than a subordinate. This is his opportunity to talk to the doctor about the health problems he might be having and he has prepared. His mother has instilled that in him. I love that in this example, he also gives a child that's on the other side of the tracks that doesn't speak up um, so much. And you might think that it's based on race and that Johnny's a privileged white boy. And the other child, a girl, is from a poor black family. But actually, you would have to reverse that because Johnny is from a black family and the poor uh, child is actually white. This shows that class, not race, has perhaps more to do with our success. In contrast, the children of poor parents may feel less entitled to the same questioning. Instead, they accept what the doctor tells them straight out without surfacing any concerns or criticism. Gladwell then uses the example of a man named Chris Langan, a genius with a 195 IQ who wasn't able to succeed in college or um, society would say he didn't succeed at life. Now, he ended um, Langan's story with the fact that Langan had a um, I mean, he had a, a life that was satisfying to him. He had a wife who he loved and he had like land and stuff. Yeah. but. You could tell that his he was wasted talent. He would go to bed That's thinking of a is. problem, yep. wake up with the solution. He would just spend hours thinking about things 
And he just felt like the man was out to get him. And he and he also felt like he was smarter and could, you know, than anybody around him. Like if anybody, you know, had something for him, he knew he could answer that and really outthink people. He's really yeah. wasted talent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His goal was to get a Ph.D., um, but he didn't not because he didn't have the intelligence, but because he was never taught how to carry himself, how to sell himself in a in like um. Let me give an example. So he was learning calculus in school and he felt the teacher was purposely teaching it in a very boring, drab way. And he thought this was perhaps the teacher's method. He couldn't understand why this was happening. So he, it seems politely, asked the teacher after class, why are you teaching it this way? And the teacher looked at him, looked down on him and said, basically everybody won't understand calculus and you wanted the people that obviously don't mm. what the teacher didn't know is that he was exceptional at calculus mm-hmm. that's why he couldn't understand why it was being taught in this way there's another example of uh when he was going to work through work to pay for school but in order to go to work he needed to change his classes from morning to yeah. evening and then um dean i think was like looking at your transcripts obviously you are someone who hasn't learned the importance of yes, hard work. Yeah. Not knowing that this boy worked harder than, you know, he's from a rural background yeah. and he's, his life has been nothing but work, but he didn't sell himself. He, he was the stereotype for them of, um, it seems like they kind of thought he was trash. Yeah. I Came from trash, so. was yep. trash and they weren't going to invest in him. Mm-hmm. So he dropped out of college. Um, couldn't convince his teachers to accommodate the simple change in schedule dropped out. And that's that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this man with 195 IQ so the conclusion the culture in which we're raised and the advantages we accumulate matched with success and practice lead to success Um, not individual merit that's not what matters so much it's the culture and the time we put into a skill and the legacy oh explain that Mm. Uh, it's um our parents, our background, um, mm-hmm. the current culture, but then our, our cultural heritage where, you know, what, what, so maybe the work of our parents. So our upbringing. Yeah. And when I'm saying culture, I, I am lumping in upbringing, but what also matters that Alexis got to is the like culture, the current culture of society and how you're viewed in that society. Mm-hmm. Um, timing, that's a good point. Timing and opportunity, culture and legacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I love it. Okay. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about summer vacations because this is something I've heard repeatedly. Now I'm going to oversimplify Gladwell, who's the master oversimplifier, um, and talk about why Asian kids are good at math. Oh, just saying yeah. that makes you cringe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, understandably, because stereotypes are used to mm-hmm. just decide what a whole group of people are like. However, if you test Asian children against children from around the world, Asian children um, typically score higher. We have to stop um, looking at it as... Um, in the context of what's proper socially and start looking at, well, why is this fact keep coming up? Yeah. And two things he mentions. He explains this, please. Yeah. He, he talks about the systematic way you care for rice patties and how a lot of countries where rice is a um, chief agricultural. Uh, what am I trying to say? Commodity. Sure. Um, they have to really master this. And 
we tend to think of all agricultural work as being hard, but that's not necessarily true. Some some um, plants, some fields are harder to grow compared to others. And then the fields in the U.S., typically you have to let them lie in order for those nutrients to replenish. And then you grow again, not with rice paddies. The more you plant, the more nutrients are in that soil. So it fosters hard work and no off days, uh, that type of living. And so this very mathematical type of agriculture. And then he also brought in the language and how um, because language does affect the way we think because of the um, did he say that there were like mathematical principles that um, some Asian language are also based on something like that. Mm, Do you remember? No, I don't remember that. I was thinking more about um, the way the the U.S. numbers uh, count versus how they count there. So explain that then. Maybe I'm confusing the two. Um, He mentioned how in the U.S. we like 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You notice how those numbers go. Um, We do it backwards and they do it in a different manner that makes it easier to learn the count, the numbering system. And, mm. and thus count. And that's why younger children can count higher in um, At an earlier a lot of ages. Asian countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that was very interesting. So you take this hardworking principle where you don't have a season off and you apply it to school. Yeah. The summer vacation too. is a very odd system, he says, because it doesn't help anyone. If you are a poor, disadvantaged child and your parents work all day, then what are you doing summer vacation? You're playing. You're hanging out. Maybe you're in a summer tutelage program, but more than likely, most of your time is spent having fun with friends. Good for you. What are people (laughs) doing who have the resources to continue training their children? They're using that time in summer to further instill instill in them what they learned in school. And that's why returning from summer vacation, American children, especially poor American children, tend to test lower than their more wealthy counterparts, not because they're smarter or less smart less intelligent, not because they didn't, the school isn't doing their job. It's this summer vacation that's like ruining our children and making them less able to compete. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. And I've heard this before also. Um, There should never be a period of time when children whose minds are like sponges should be told, now you ain't got to do nothing for three months. Yeah. Where do they do that at? Why is this happening? And so he's like, so, um, kids are in school 240 some odd days over in this. I'm just going to say the Asian countries because yeah, I don't yeah. specify. Um, I don't remember what he said. Well, he m- mentioned Singapore, Singapore Japan, okay. China. Yeah. So. Whereas here, we're only in school 180 days. And this made me think about the concept of year round school. Um, you're yeah. familiar with that? I am. I, yeah. I remember, and I don't know how successful it was, but they seemed like they was always out of school too. But it was like a week here, a week there, a week here. But I don't know. They it still seemed like they were out of school. But I think, and that I don't was, hear about it anymore. I so I don't know if it's still it. going right. on. Right, and I don't. I feel like that was supposed to cover that not being out the whole summer. Yeah. So if you, uh, listener, know anything about year long schooling, if it's still happening where you live, let us know. Yeah. Because I want to know um, what they found with that. Yeah, so that's it. There's also a really cool anecdote about planes and pilots mm. and how pilots from Korea were crashing planes at one time in history because of the cultural politeness honor. of their language. The <laughs> yep. culture of honor. Yep. 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 So um, being polite 
in some instances cost people their lives. And I won't even say being polite. It was just a um a lack of direct translation. Oh, right. Yeah. The the translation is expected to come from not the communicator, but the listener. But the listener. Yeah. So if I if Alexis goes, Do you feel like lunch? It is up to me as a listener to know that she is offering to treat me to lunch. This ain't this don't never happen. <laughs> and then I'm supposed to go, shall I? And then as the listener, Alexis knows that I'm agreeing. Right. So like stuff like that. Very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let's move on to just a few questions as we close out our deep dive. Alexis, what is this book about in your opinion? Uh, it's, it's really, in my opinion, it's about the different ways we can, that contribute to our individual greatness. Um, mm, oh, I love that. And, um, individual greatness. Yeah. So like that. like that legacy that I was talking about, the culture that you were talking about, opportunities and definitely opportunities, all that contributes to how great we get to become. And that's greatness is at different levels. Right. So because some um, Bill Gates got to be great because he had that open door opportunity and the timing the timing at which he was able to um, get in on this computer uh, world and become great. I think it was that all the computer greats were all born around the same time because yes. there was an open window of opportunity between yeah. here and here. Um, you know, they could be great. They, they could achieve, they could get that. And he had that free space in which he could be in the uh, computer room all day. It was now a shared, what did you call it? Oh, I'm sorry yeah. that he could now do it. You know, multiple people um, sharing the database and uh, learning at the same time. So, yeah, individual greatness and how all these things contribute to that so that you time sharing. Yeah, time sharing. Sorry. So you could open your mind and not feel limited about yes. um, being great or better or just because you don't have this doesn't mean you can't be great. Mm -hmm. It also made me think of um, households where um, res the responsibility is not uh, where, where no one feels responsible to anyone. <laughs> uh, maybe the dad leaves or yeah. there's no support around the mom. What you are doing is creating an environment for that child. You are hindering their advancement in life yeah. by your selfishness. Yeah. Because that child now has to worry more about perhaps the food that'll come into that house, the emotional or, or mental health of everyone in the house since they're under more pressure and they have less time to just, you know, go program computers. Exactly. Also less money, less um, opportunity. You're losing opportunity. Um, they're not surrounded. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. They're not surrounded by people who are going to be the catalyst for their success. Mm -hmm. And you need all of those things to achieve your goals. And your goal may not be based on money. Right. Your goal might be um, just becoming a good teacher in order to volunteer uh, your time to teach others. Yeah. It is easier to do that when you have a system around you of people who also share that goal and can encourage you to use your time in that way. Yeah. If you're worried about working, if you're worried about getting money in, if you're worried about the happiness of your mother, brothers and sisters, you know, it's harder to um, free your mind up for that. That's a real life consequence of uh, selfishness. Yeah. 
the burdens so, placed on the youth. Yes, the burdens decision. on babies, mm-hmm. burdens on babies. Yeah. Malcolm, write write that book. Yeah. Burdens on babies. Yeah, yeah, very. It ain't fair. Mm-hmm. Which anecdotes from this book stood out to you most? I covered four of them, but is there anything I left out in those four, or was there another that stuck with you? The the culture of honor that you touched on towards the end was just like really really um surprising to me and it um really opened my eyes to other cultures and how they train people i mean the idea that there were back to back plane crashes, crashes yeah based on how the communication is um in that so we community. might as well talk about it just for y'all who haven't heard it is that okay sure sure you want to do that um I don't know if I can explain it as well as you, but. Oh, you can. (laughs) The idea is that um, the the pilots are in the cockpit. You have the, what do you call them? The the main pilot. The co-pilot and the, yeah, yeah. we'll say main pilot. The main pilot and the co-pilot, and then there's somebody else in there. Well, because um, the. No, it's just them two in air traffic control. Okay. So then you have. You're flying along and you see that something is not going well. So instead of saying directly to your pilot, we don't have enough fuel to land if we don't land right now. You say, go ahead, please. (laughs) (laughs) These gauges are useful. (laughs) These gauges that gauge how much fuel we have, they're useful. And so what I am then supposed to understand or attention to the gauges (laughs) that you want me to pay attention to those gauges yeah Mm -hmm. but instead i'm like you ain't saying nothing strong with that so you obviously you're just telling me information you're not telling me information i'm not i need to act on immediately there's no urgency in the tone in which you're speaking to me yeah and so therefore i can ignore or just overlook dismiss dismiss what you're saying to me and if i say it three times it still doesn't mean anything because i'm not saying it with urgency and and that's a type of speech that's very blunt and to the point um is a very anglo-saxon like way of speaking Mm -hmm. um so if you have like um one thing he mentioned is that you have to know english no matter where you're flying no matter um you have to know some type of aviation english at least so the air traffic control people, because they have so many pilots from all over the world uh, sometimes, and just because of the job, they're often rude right. uh, compared to other cultures in their communication. So if someone from air traffic control is talking to you like this, that might intimidate you. Right. And so one plane, they listened to the black box before it went down and the co-pilot said, I think he's upset, referring to air traffic control. He is about to die including with everyone on the plane. And his concern is his feelings are hurt because of the way air traffic control spoke to him. And one thing Gladwell mentions, um, like he focuses on this, what did he call it of honor? Culture of honor. This culture of honor and the way they communicate and how that that can't be um, upheld in the aviation world. But I would counter that with the idea that well, maybe uh, we just need to start be stop being so blunt. <laughs> like maybe you sensitive as a co-pilot. Maybe you sensitive. OK, I've never met you as air traffic control. Maybe I knowing I've never met you. I don't know your culture. I don't know your background. I could just be a little more 
do you have everything you need? You know what I mean? That's true. Is everything clear for you? I good. That's true. I could be in the position of, because I'm air traffic control, my job is, to, yes, direct traffic, but you don't see police in the street going, move it this way. Well, you do, you do though. though so that's bad. That's don't do that. So then, but then <laughs> also remember he said, if the, the pilot was serving as co-pilot and the co-pilot would actually driving the plane. This is my, one of my favorite things from the book. Yep. He said the co the co-pilot, which is actually the captain, is actually going to speak very directly and very clear to the co-pilot. So what Alexis is bringing out is a policy change in um, a Korean airline that I think applied across. I think that's also U.S. airlines. I can't remember. Um, but the one with the most experience, always the co-pilot. And they made him the co-pilot instead of the pilot because it's culturally OK for him to speak up. In mm -hmm. um, managerial teams, the one with the most experience should not be at the top. Mm. Because it is harder for other people to point out their mistakes or yeah. things they have overlooked. And it's harder for the person at the top to listen to people who do that. Yeah. So the one with the most experience should be right under whoever's leading the ship or in this case, driving the plane, yeah. flying the plane. And that was brilliant. Yeah, it was. And then the resolution for that, which improved um, Korean airlines, I think it was called, um, is that they gave them this. English, just Western education, uh, how to speak directly so that um, their communication improved. And it was no longer. I don't the like receiver. that. I'm going to tell you, I don't like it. It was. They said y'all too polite. Your language is based on what the listener receives and it has to be more driven. The one speaking has to drive the conversation. I think there's something missing there. You don't tell people that. that I don't know. Sure, that may not have been the right way to handle that, but at um until it they stop the planes from going down. exactly until they figure yeah. out another way, those planes stop um crashing. And so it was a necessary change at the moment. They brought in somebody from Delta, English speaker from Delta, and apply English concepts to communication. But ultimately, by the way, have you ever communicated with a Delta? I knew they was getting on everybody's nerves. No diss to the Deltas. <laughs> but yeah, that, I they really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that um, piece as well. What so what makes you? this book unique to you? Oh, I because I think it um, I'm trying. I've been trying to listen to this book and also think about um, the tipping point. And I'm sorry, you listened to this book? I did. You didn't just read the copy you stole from me? <laughs> I did listen That's to this audacious book. That's audacious on another I level. I did <laughs> listen to this book because I was, oh my goodness. I was sleeping. I had to hurry up. <laughs> um, yeah. So as I listened to this book, I was trying to recall the tipping point and I couldn't really recall so much what the tipping point is about, which is why I had a hard time responding to your question because I, while I remember like very specific things from the tipping point, like the um, learning of uh, Sesame street and I can't think of that repetition. Yeah. Um, and other stuff. And then the, mm -hmm. the learning about the AIDS and how that spread, that there was that one thing that put it over the top. I feel like this book um, had more personal application for me that I could use 
And I, I think that's what um, what I enjoyed. And as part of my conclusion, I was definitely going to say that uh, I because I was in a hurry, I, the, I listened fast and I would like to slow down and read this book so I can get more from it. And just sit with the information. That makes sense. I think the tipping point is great if you're in sales or you have a business that you're trying to drive. It talks about how to use, it's almost like the 80-20 rule, how to use your efforts to get the most result. And by do that by applying the law of the few, um, uh, the stickiness factor, influencers. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, okay. And this book, anybody can use this information. And that's what I felt like. I could really use this information in some aspect of my life um, to make improvements. Yeah, it made me think of who can I support more and how. Uh So I love that um, when the focus is internal. Yeah. All right. Okay, great. Well, if you're ready, we'll move on to our final verdict. Okay. We're back. Alexis, what did you think of Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? And would you recommend this book? It was definitely an interesting read. I like to read it slower and without a deadline. There were footnotes (laughs) that I skipped over because I was trying to finish by the deadline. So I would recommend it. It, I mentioned it before, but I liked learning about that culture of honor, um, Southerners versus Northerners, communication between superiors and subordinates and flying instances, um, growing rights, less mistakes, um, mastering mathematics is mathematics. If you're willing to try, there were so many things. Um, he talked about, and I, I, this might be actually from a video I read, but he said that we should be setting up institutions and structures that allow people to spend time to reach mastery not judging them prematurely he talked about okay let me go ahead (laughs) he talked about sorry no you got me excited (laughs) yeah go ahead this community of help and you spoke about that briefly but that community um it helps us to build institutions that provide opportunities in that community small in the home where everybody is there and then just working outward. So uh, it was a really, I really enjoyed this book and I, I just got to read it again, just at a, a slower pace. I would recommend it. Um, You made me recall something he said about classrooms and how we send a student to the top of the class uh, to the front of the class to write the answer on the board. And the faster they write it, the more they're rewarded. Right. It would be better if we just sat with the student who can't get that math problem down, um, helped them as a community, mm-hmm. in this case, the classroom, and stayed with them 20, 30 minutes yep. till that problem was resolved. That's what leads to success, this kind of um, tenacity. Yeah. Um, yeah, I loved that. Yeah. So how about you? Would you recommend the book? Would you um, read it again? Prefer it? Yeah, usually we talk about beach reads as being these kind of like flighty books you can hop in and out of. But this is actually a great beach read, too. I first read this book on vacation and reading something like this um, and then being in a relaxed atmosphere helps it helps the information sink in. And it's just so positive. This is a book that tells you the tools are in your hands. Mm-hmm. Not that you're great. In fact, you're right, not great. Right, right. <laughs> It's a book that fosters humility because it's telling you, you ain't no better than anybody else. 
you got to work hard. And when you get to where you're going, make sure you remember all the factors that contributed to you reaching your end goal. And I love that. I love the idea of thinking life doesn't happen to you. um, But there are actual real tangible factors that lead to B, you know, that lead to C. This happened because of this. Um, And then when things are out of your hands, let's say um, you're in a household where you have to where you're under more stresses than someone else. Well, there are other factors that you can um, possibly create for yourself. Um, to give yourself that time to become good at whatever you're trying to be good at yeah. or whatever goal you're trying to reach. So I definitely would recommend it. I, this is my favorite book out of the two, because oh. uh, like you said earlier, I do think Outliers is more for everyone. And the tipping point, if you're not in business or sales, I don't know if I'm really ever going to use that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this book is more for the every man. Yeah. Well, that's that's that was great. Uh, thanks for it introducing uh, me to that book. I did not, I repeat, I did not steal your book. One of your other (laughs) friends has it. I bet you really believe that too. (laughs) You really believe that. So Kari, what are we reading next week? One Drop by Yaba Blay. Yes. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, because we love you too. We love you, Kari. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And wake up before dawn 300 days out of the year. And until next time, read Read something. something.